Okay, we're in a series on holiness, as you know. Let me just remind you where we've come from, the journey that we're on as we talk about holiness. Uh, My desire initially was to get you immersed into the Old Testament. That's really my one of my deeper desires because I know from many of your traditions and talking to you that the Old Testament is foreign to you. And um, and it feels very awkward and it should it feels very archaic. You know, when you when, when if you had lived in the ancient world and we're going to see some of this today and you receive something from the Lord, it's always going to be refreshing to you if you're one of the faithful. Now, when we're looking back at it, it looks archaic. And the further we get away from it, the more archaic it looks. And so we're, we're 3,500 years from when God first spoke to Moses. We're 4,000 years from when he spoke to Abraham or longer. And so it's very difficult for us to understand his words into their culture at that time. That's why when we describe the law, many of us use terms that the authors of the scriptures would never use. Because they, did, they never thought of, of the law or God the way we often picture him in the Old Testament. Even the older language of 100 years ago that God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath and God in the New Testament is a God of grace, that just makes him bipolar. Honestly, he's not. He is always a God of grace. Always a God of love. And so one of the reasons we wanted to spend a rich time in the Old Testament is to continue to immerse you in some of these passages that reflect the God that we serve. Remember, the New Testament is largely a Christological interpretation of the Old. They didn't have the New Testament. All they had, their scriptures, were what we refer to as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. That, that was their Bible. And as they began to make sense of the promises of their Bible, uh, in light of who Jesus was, they began to write that down. We have that now in the form of what we call the New Testament. You could call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That works just fine. Um, and we hopefully you're beginning to see that all these dots are connected. So we started out with just an introduction of what is holiness. And as we moved into the first week, we talked about how it reveals the true nature of reality of the world around Israel. They had the concept of holiness, just not the way God desired it. Holiness for them was not something related to morality, not something related to goodness. It was related to a, another another God up there who we needed to pacify so that he wouldn't be angry with us. Um, and so they were, he was other than us. He was distinctly different, so they referred to that as holy. And so our God comes along and begins to to take that language and reshape it to give us a sense of who he truly is. And it's his holiness that invites us into a relationship with him. So I've asked the question all along the way, when I mention the word holy or holiness, is your tendency to go, oh, more rules. I have to live a certain expectation, a certain way of life. Or is it, this is an invitation from the one true living God who is inviting us Uh, more than inviting us, yearns to have us into a deep relationship with him. That's of holiness. 
is that we have a God who made us. He created us to be in a relationship with him. And that's what he wants. But at the same time, there's a problem. We haven't quite gotten to the problem yet. We're going to start working our way there today. Uh, we have a problem, and, and you've all heard the, the Christian lingo, you know, so you know Jesus Christ, Christ came to die for us, that sort of thing. That's all true. None of that is false. But that's a, that's a very small picture of what's happening. The larger narrative, the larger story of this holy God working in all of creation uh, to give us... A way to love him. I was on uh, one of the. Uh, I was on a blog recently, and it's a fairly, uh, from my perspective, theologically a fairly liberal blog. And these theologians were dancing all around this concept of original sin, and they were mocking and laughing at the early accounts of Genesis. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It's just you know, it's all myth. The, the whole story of Adam and Eve and the fall and all that. Why in the world would any God even think that and do that? So I just wrote back and I said, I actually believe it. That's all I said. And I immediately got pounced on. You know, you must be one of those fundamentalist, evangelical, Caucasian, now we're entering into politics, pastors. Right? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I am, but I still believe it. And one of them said, after all of the derisive comments, one of them said, why would you possibly believe it? And I said, I cannot think of a more fundamental way to show human dignity to us than to give us a choice. That's at the core of human dignity is to give us a choice. And that's what's captured in the early part of Genesis. See, that's a good God. Silence for several days. (laughs) And finally, one of them wrote back and he said, well, you got my attention. I've never thought of that story that way. I'll have to reflect on it. Um, I believe it. I believe these stories. There is a deep problem, and the problem we're going to begin to introduce it today is not simply that, that God set up these rules, we disobeyed, and therefore we're, we're destined for hell. No, it doesn't quite work that way when you work your way through the Bible. It's far deeper than that, and it's far more reflective of who God is. The second week, we began to look at the covenant Revealed. Not only did it reveal the problems of the world around Israel, first week, but the second week, it also reveals the true nature of the God that we serve. That's where we were last week. That this holiness is not something to chase us away. This holiness, oh sure, it's something to be held carefully, to be respected deeply. Uh, God, Don't mess with God. I have no problem with that. But at the same time, it's an invitation into something that we were created for that many of us don't really know what that is. You can look all around our county and you can see people searching for what they're created for. They're trying to find it. They just can't get there. They can't. That is part of the problem, is they can't actually get there. So they try everything from drugs and sex and you name it, alcohol, and and none of it, it really gets there. As the author of the Proverbs says, there's two pathways laid out for us. One is the pathway of righteousness and wisdom. 
And it takes a long time to get to walk that road to really begin to experience a deeper joy. But it's real. And it's there. The other path is folly or foolishness. That leads to perceived joy and it's short-lived. And in my conversations all over the county, I have met lots and lots of people walking this path right here. And they are not happy with where they are, so they're moving further down the path under the promise, the deceived promise, that it'll bring them more joy. But it's, it's just perceived joy. It's, it's bankrupt. It's not real. It's this path over here that brings true joy. And that's what's woven all throughout the Bible is this, this path over here. Now, for some of you, depending on your traditions, I know we have a lot of traditions here, that's been communicated in language of rules, regulations, rituals, and all that. Those are not bad. They only become bad when they become the, the object of worship, when they become the idol, when they become the way we manipulate and exert power. There's nothing wrong with telling you don't do certain things. That's legitimate to say that. We say that to our children all the time, don't we? Don't do certain things. You're not going to be happy with the result. <laughs> you may get punished, you know, or you may experience something you don't want. This is getting into the heart of what holiness is all about, is holiness at its core is believing, truly believing that there's a God who knows what's best. And even if we don't understand it, we stand firm. Even if we don't understand it. We have enough confidence that we'll say, okay, God, I'm in. I'll do what you're asking, even though it doesn't make sense to me right now. It's the same thing our children do with us. We ask them to trust us because we do know what's best as parents. We've lived life, haven't we? Now that I'm a grandparent, I even see more of that uh, than I've ever seen before. We do know what's best. That's what faith is all about. This is a holy God. He does know what is best. He's the one that set everything in motion. He's the one that created us. And so the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, they are filled with the language of who this God is and how he relates to people. So today we're going to ask the question related to the true nature of human life. Now, when I say the true nature of human life and I get into and start describing it, you're going to say, well, that really doesn't describe a lot of what, the way we live life. Yes, it does, ultimately. And so the covenant does reveal the true nature of what life is about as a human. And it's also going to set us up for looking at what actually happened. What actually happened that led to the failure of all of this so that it doesn't make sense. So... How did the covenant reveal the true nature of human life? That's the question. Last week was how did the covenant reveal the true nature of God? So now how does it reveal the true nature of human life? The way we were intended to live life. Next week we're going to ask the question, how did the covenant reveal the true nature of the human heart? And we're stepping deeper into the mud with that question once we get in there. <clears throat> so, we said last week about the true nature of God that specifically He is gracious, He is ethical, He has standards, He has morals. There's only one set of standards for the world. The world doesn't believe that, but it is true. So He is ethical, He is faithful, He is loving. 
We see that everywhere we go. Understanding the character of God is necessary in order to understand his intent for us. So today we're going to do a mirror kind of approach. We looked at who God was. That automatically begins to reveal what he intended for us and intends for us. And we are already beginning to enjoy some of that. But we have to wait till the New Testament to see that piece of it. But we're already beginning to enjoy it. By the way, we're going to go up to Lent in the Old Testament. And then starting with Lent, we're going to move into the New Testament and revisit all these concepts and see what happened through the Messiah Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But everything changed. So let's start with the big Why did God to Abraham in the first place? Why? I mean, did he just want to give Abraham a posterity and some land? Well, that's easy to do. Is that really all he wanted? Could he have just taken Abraham's descendants right to the promised land and left them there? Brought him down there and said, here's your land. Have a good life. Sounds simple, doesn't it? The Abraham... Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that he made with Abraham on that journey, reveals that the answer to those questions is no. That is not what God intended. You see, what he offered to Abraham is related to a much deeper problem. It's called death. Death. Something we all experience. Everything we do is made meaningless by death. Everything. I'm a big Louis L'Amour fan. One of the things he likes to say is the value of our life is the same as pulling your finger out of the water and pretty soon there's no evidence that you ever existed. That's how meaningless life is because of death. This problem is multiplied for those who are childless and landless as Abraham and Sarah were. They grasped the meaninglessness of life. They were childless and they were landless. In their culture, they were without honor. All of us want to have honor and significance. All of us do. And we find ways to create it. Because it's hard to believe that we have dignity simply because we're made in God's image. And that is unique to Christianity. And so we look for ways to create that sense of significance in our lives. In Abraham's world, he didn't have it. He's childless and he's landless. And those are two big strikes against him. Well, it's also multiplied for those who are oppressed, which is the story of Israel. When God steps in, they're in a very oppressed state, as many of you have been and maybe still are. For these types of people, which ultimately includes all of us, death mocks us because we disappear forever. And so death mocks us. That's the language used in various places throughout the Bible. Death mocks us. Paul turns around in the New Testament and mocks death back. Where's your sting, O death? You're so powerful. Where is it? We'll get there. You have to stay on the journey. On the other hand, if you know that your posterity will live after you, then that begins to lessen the impact of death. And we see that in the world all around us. So-and-so lives on in the music that they created, the art that they did, the children that they have. They're not talking about the person. That's a worldly view. 
so-and-so lives on in the memories of us. I hear that language all the time. But it does lessen the impact of death, but it doesn't solve the real problem, does it? The real problem is death. That's exactly what God said would happen in the garden. You eat of this one tree, you're going to die. And we all pay the price for that. This is the real intent with the covenant with Abraham is that death will be defeated. This is the real core message. Death will be defeated. You all know the story of sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. God says to Isaac, I mean to Abraham, first of all, Abraham comes and says, I have children. How in the world are you going to bless me? (laughs) Well, you're going to have children. Don't worry. Uh, Like the sand of the seashore, your descendants are going to be. So then after waiting 10 years, and he's already getting too old, thereabouts, he said, well, it's obviously that Sarah's not going to have a child, so I'll have a child through her maid. And uh, first of all, he says, take my servant. God says, no, not your servant. He said, okay, then I'm going to have a child through the maid. He said, no, not that one either. You're going to have a child through Sarah. And that's when Sarah laughs. We looked at that story. Sarah's behind the the veil, the tent curtain, laughing when she hears that. Because she's 90 years old. Okay? And she laughs, and the Lord says, why'd you laugh? I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, you did. (laughs) You can't hide from God. (laughs) That's one of the lessons we learned. And so he has a son and names him Isaac. He laughs. Okay? Third person masculine of the verb to laugh. He laughs. God gets the last laugh. And then he turns right around and says, Abraham, now... Uh, Isaac is older now. He's old enough to carry the wood, so he's probably a teenager as they climb the mountain. And he said, uh, Abraham, take your son, your only son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and kill him. Wow. I've asked this question a number of times with you throughout the, the Hebrew Scriptures. Does that represent the redemptive God that we know? That God would say, kill your son. Okay, pause. God had not yet said, don't kill your children. That comes later. And so, Abraham didn't know any different. You see, the real test for Abraham was not in the sacrifice of his son. That ethic had not yet been developed in world history. That wasn't the test. The test was about resurrection. Do you believe, Abraham, do you really believe that I'm going to bless you through this one person? Read with me Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, now we're in the New Testament looking back. Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Embraced the promises to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise and even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he received Isaac back from death. That's resurrection. That's the heart of the covenant with Abraham, is that Abraham believed death was no longer permanent. So he was willing to take the life of his son because he knew, he knew God to be a faithful God and he would bring his son right back to life. That's faith. Is that faith? Yeah, that's faith, isn't it? So, 
The question is how. If death is going to be defeated, how is it going to be done? You see, it has to come from God himself. So like we said last week, this begins to explain the detour to Mount Sinai. He could have taken him from Egypt direct, direct to the promised land, but he didn't. He detoured over into the mountains and had them sit there while they received the whole law. Exodus 20 through Numbers 10. They received it all right there at Mount Sinai. And this begins to explain that detour. God's ultimate purpose is not that Israel should have the promised land. We saw that last week. Rather, it's that they should be brought into a relationship with him in such a way that his holiness not only would not destroy them, but would bring them in to a whole new way of living, what they were actually created for. It's what they were created for. He wanted to show his people what it is going to take for them to live in his life-giving presence. And this is the beginning of understanding what his intent for human life is. His intent is all wrapped up in his character. If God is love, then his intent is that we should be as well. And we should experience that level of love. And so these stories lay all the foundation for us to understand who God is and what he intends for us, where our ultimate outcome is, what life is actually going to look like. So God's intent is captured by two significant passages. One of them, uh, they're both in Exodus, and at the very beginning of Exodus, actually, before, and, and God's now setting the stage, Exodus 3 and 6, setting the stage for them to come out of Egypt. So the first one is at the burning bush. Remember the burning bush? Okay. Moses appears at the burning bush, and here's what God says to him in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Okay, hold on. I am the God. I am the God of your father. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living. Aren't they dead? He can't be their God if they're dead. Oh, they're still alive. Here we see that beginning to ooze out. He's the God of the living. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. There it is. God is paying attention. I have seen. This is beginning to build the theology of the entire Bible. God sees what's going on. He watches. He watches. He notices everything. I have heard them crying out. Now think about what we saw in the last series. The idols didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. They're dumb pieces of wood. I have seen I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Okay, there it is. I've come down to save them. There's where this beautiful word salvation comes in. I've come down to deliver, to rescue, to save. We throw this word around, and and we don't often capture the full intent of it. 
to save them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. These two words capture the idea of the good life. He's bringing them to a place of the good life, a place where they would experience shalom, blessing, joy, all the things that they were created to enjoy. This is where he's taking them. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am going to, uh, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This begins to lay out the foundation, our core theology as Christians. God hears, He sees. He remembers his promise to those who have died. They're still alive. God is the God of the living. And he comes to rescue and to deliver. A little bit later, Moses goes back and he's talking to God about this whole thing in Exodus 6, just three chapters later. And listen to what he says here. Um, I'm going to start in verse 1. Yours starts in verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, not only will he let them go, he will drive them out of his country. So he starts in verse 1. Now verse 2. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. There's his name right there. It's all caps. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Once again, he's the God of the living. He's constantly reminding these people that these people who have died gone on. They're not dead. He overcame the problem of death through resurrection. Abraham figured it out. So should we, by the way. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where uh, they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings. There it is again. I've heard. God is listening. He hears the deepest cries of your heart. I have heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. He says it again. There it is. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. This is Paul's argument in Romans 6. We have been freed from slavery to sin. The true exodus, the new exodus. This is a picture of what God is for us. Freedom. Freedom from slavery. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. He said that three times. What his name is. So from these passages, we learn three very basic things about God. Number one, he is the God of the living. Resurrection is very real. Some of you have said goodbye to very good friends and relatives. I have. Uh, They're not gone. They're very much alive. That's the first thing. He's the God of the living. The second thing is that he's very sensitive to his people's sufferings. He knows what's going on with you. He sees it. He understands it. He hears it. And the third thing is that he intends to deliver his people 
thus fulfilling the ancient promises. He's going to remember his covenant. What do we say at communion? What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me because I remembered you. He's committing himself to a group of people for their good, but he's not demanding that they prove themselves first. He hasn't even led them out of Egypt yet. and He's making all these promises and covenants and commitments. That's the God that we serve. He's not demanding that you prove yourself before he steps in. He steps in first. He always initiates. And that becomes a model for us. Think about all the verbs in the New Testament. Love one another, not be loved by one another. Forgive one another, not be forgiven by one another. Carry one another's burdens, not have your burdens carried by one another. On and on and on. Paul uses the phrase one another 57 times. Whatever he means, he means for us to be doing it together and to be initiating in each other's lives. That's what it's all about. So what we learn from this is to be holy is to be gracious. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be gracious. And that's what we are called to be. Gracious toward each other. We saw last week that the heart of the covenant, what we call law, is that God wanted to live in the midst of his people. That was the purpose of the tabernacle. By the way, this is what happens at the end of time. Look at Revelation chapter 21. We're at the very end of the Bible. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He's with us in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb its lamp. The nations, boy, that was a promise to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into this new city where the temple is, where the Lord God is. And no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. So at the very end, exactly what happens, God is living with us permanently in very tangible ways. Jesus is with us for all of eternity. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus is far, far bigger than the cross. He took on the form of a human servant, a slave, for all of eternity, just so he could live with us. And that's what the tabernacle and the temple were supposed to illustrate. But we all know there's a problem, right? Our brokenness. We're going to learn a lot more about that next week. That led to death. Last week we raised the question of how sinful people could live in God's presence, and the answer was a sacrificial system. That was what God put in place. It was for those who were already in a relationship with God. He redeemed them first before he gave them the law. Then he says, now here's, what, here's how you can live in my presence. I remember for them it was wonderful because all the other gods were quiet, silent. Well, you know they don't exist now, but they didn't know that. What a great thing that God says, if you sin, go do this. And it'll be okay. I will forgive you. Continual atonement. It gives us a hint of what is coming, but you're going to have to wait for Lent to hear the fuller story. In spite of the inadequacies of the sacrificial system, what we learn through the sacrifices is that God loves us and wants us to live in his presence. So he gave us a means to come back into his presence Every time we sin, no other religion, no other God did that. It's a statement about his deep, passionate love for us that he gives us a way to constantly come back, walk into his presence. So this raises the question of what is the true goal of salvation? 
It is that we live in God's presence. This is the story of Exodus. Of the Exodus. God came down, brought them out, and lived with them. This is what human life is intended to be like. We live in God's presence. And we experience Him. We enjoy Him. We're very aware of Him all the time. Not just on Sunday morning. But we're aware that He's with us constantly. The goal of salvation is fellowship with God and keeping His character. It's called holiness. That's what we were created for. You've got two pathways. Human dignity, God gives you the choice. One of those pathways leads to deeper, sustained joy. And the other one leads to perceived joy, which is an illusion. And I think most of you have enough experience to know what I mean by that. The thought that the primary purpose of the cross is forgiveness, that thought is misguided. That is a piece of the cross. And as long as we are reductionistic and we reduce it down to simply forgiveness, then we have missed the whole intent of the scriptures that God desires to live with us in very deep relationship. I will make you my people and I will be your God. And I will go with you everywhere you go. Never again will you ever be alone. Ever. That's what the cross is all about. More at Lent. (laughs) The covenant revealed that it was not the means of entering into a relationship with God. They already had that. The covenant was given to a people who had already been delivered. Already. And so when we look at the Bible, we're not trying to talk to you about how to live life to be pleasing to God. He was already pleased enough to give you salvation. The reason why we talk to you about living by faith is to have that deep relationship that you're going to miss if you don't do it. It's not an issue on God's part. God has already redeemed you. You're the one that loses out. Now, the reality is most of us go back and forth. Most of us go back and forth on these two roads. As we mature, we spend more and more time over on this side. And we begin to experience the joy. But the moment we're back over here, God's still with us. He just kicks us in the rear sometimes and pushes us back over on this side. The covenant revealed the true nature of what God intends for us and how to walk with him. Where do we get to the new covenant? That's coming in a few weeks. So now we're back to the character of God, the one who stands behind the covenant. Remember what we read in Exodus 20, verse 5? You shall not bow down to them, these other gods, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Pause. That's where we usually stop the quote. But look at the next one. Showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Other places it says to thousands, thousands, thousands. In other words, God's punishment is this small compared to his grace, which is bigger than you can possibly imagine. That's how big it is. So God doesn't mind, just like you as a good parent, getting in your face a little bit. He doesn't mind kicking you when you need it. But his reason is the second part 
so that you can enjoy him for thousands of generations. This is captured, we said last week, by this word chesed, love. This word, this Hebrew word, captures many ideas. It's a very large word, and it occurs all throughout the Old Testament. It reflects God's earnest, undeserved, unexpected generosity of one who does not have to give it, but chooses to. It reflects his faithfulness in that he is faithful to his covenant, his promise to us. It demonstrates his grace to initiate his love to us before we ever even deserve it. This is the God that we serve. He's not like the other gods. That's what we learn from him. He genuinely wants to be in a relationship with us and he wants us to know him. By the way, this is the purpose of the rituals. All throughout Scripture, every time God acted, they created a ritual, a festival, a practice to remember it. This is why we do communion every, every Sunday. This is a ritual. So when you experience the rituals that we have, that we do as a church, does it just make you feel good about yourself? Or does it actually bring Christ into our lives? In very real ways. If all it's doing is making you feel good, then we have missed it. A ritual done well brings the reality. We talked about that dark glass becomes clear. It brings Christ into our life in very real ways. Do you experience him that way? We have two tools right now. Offering and communion. Do you just put money in the plate? Or do you recognize that God is the one who blessed you with whatever level of riches that you have? That that was his doing and therefore you give because you want to give back. That's bringing Christ into our world. Father, thank you for blessing us so richly. We are so grateful. In your son's name, amen.